Hey everyone, welcome to the Simple Electronics Podcast. I'm your host Dan from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. This episode is sponsored by PCBWay, but more about that a little bit later on, because today I've got a very special guest. You probably already know him if you're a fan of the channel or a fan of electronics channels in general. I've got Gadget Reboot with me. How are you? I'm good. Good to be back. How are you? I'm uh, I'm pretty good. I had a uh, I had a rough day, so I'm really glad to be sitting down with uh, uh, a friendly voice on the other end today. Yeah, it's been uh, nonstop for me so far this week, and I think it's just going to get busier. So yeah, it's good to have a break from that and just talk about anything except why is the computer needing to be rebooted every ten minutes and stuff like that. All right, so let's get started. Why does a computer have to be rebooted every 10 minutes? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> be, uh, because it's from 2011 and it's on its last legs and it can't even run modern software. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, you're talking about your MacBook? Yeah, I have an old Mac and I basically use a little bit of Mac, a little Windows, a little Linux, depending what I'm doing. But um, for things related to making videos and editing videos and doing some KiCad PCB design. I still rely heavily on that old MacBook and it's really bad. It's I, I've upgraded it. I've added more RAM. I've increased the hard drive over time, but it seems like when I do a clean boot, it says, okay, I'm ready to start failing. <laughs> oh God. And um, yeah. I've, so I've actually bought a brand new laptop very recently i brought the i bought the framework uh, 13 which is a fully repairable um uh, laptop basically with the new uh, amd ryzen chip in it and everything and what's cool about the framework is that you basically build it yourself and that means that you can order it without a hard drive and without ram um, and it also means you don't have to pay for a windows license you can either buy your own or you can install linux or whatever you want um, but the thought of installing Linux had crossed my mind, but I wouldn't even know what kind of Linux to install. There's so many like distros. Do you have any insight of what kind of uh, Linux you like, for example? Well, I'm still kind of learning as I go. And I, I've tried looking up like what's a good distro for this or that kind of purpose. And Really, I, st I first did this, I think, in 2015. I set up a media server PC with an old computer in the basement, and I ran Linux Mint because I think I saw somewhere that it's new person-friendly, and it kind of looks and feels a little similar to Windows for the desktop environment. And I was okay with that. I was able to use it. Like, what scared me off is having to use the command line prompt for all kinds of stuff all the time, and that still is a thing like no matter what i'm running i still always end up in the terminal and like recently um, i was doing something in arduino on the linux system and i couldn't like arduino couldn't have access to the serial ports when i plugged in an esp32 so it i couldn't program it so i had to spend some time researching how do i assign permissions for the com port to the current logged in user and i, I tried to make notes over time in a uh, Google Docs. So I, when I have the same problems again, I can figure it out. But yeah, it, it, it didn't seem to matter for me. I tried a few different things. Uh, I tried, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Ubuntu, Ubuntu, something, whatever. Um, I tried a few of those and 
I, it's the same thing. It's nowadays, I think it's all pretty much a standard uh, desktop interface. Of course, it's going to look a little different when you open a file manager or something. But what always happens is no matter how user friendly the desktop environment is, I always have to go to the terminal and I feel like I'm learning programming all over again. And so I don't know if there's a good recommended all around thing for beginners. And I don't know if you can also go too wrong anymore, but I think a lot of people consider Linux Mint to be an easy entryway. I've heard about Linux Mint. I've heard uh, also a good starting uh, a good starting distro uh, would be also uh, Manjaro, and there's Pop OS. There's all sorts of things, and I think that's a little bit the issue. When I installed Windows, for me it was easy, just Windows 10 Pro. I mean, it's very simple. But for Linux, I mean, even for the two major sort of sides of Linux, there's just so many options that I, I don't I don't even you know I don't even know what's going on, uh, so yeah just uh you know I appreciate your your feedback that uh, Linux Mint might be a good starting point. And another thing I learned myself over the past couple of years, I bought a new uh, desktop system to try and get set up beside the Mac in case the Mac ever fails. So I installed one of the Ubuntu things. Uh, I think it was Focal Fossa or so. I I cannot track all the names. But um, it gave me a lot of problems with the video card that I was trying to use. So that's, I think it's because it was an older video card. It was probably 10 to 15 years old. And I was just trying to recycle from old hardware. But it didn't like that. And it had something to do with, I can't remember if I was trying to use NVIDIA or um, AMD. But it didn't like it. So. Um, I, I also learned uh, so to use modern hardware if possible, but at the same time, I learned there's a long term release. I can't remember what it's called. LTS, long term stable or something, maybe long term supported. And then there's the other uh, kind, which is what I used, where you can update it more frequently, but it's more experimental and less stable and proven. So that's the other beginner advice. Get the long term stable release because it probably has more reliable drivers and less chances you're going to do an update and something goes really disastrous. I think this is one of the issues with open source things is that because everyone can have a finger in the pie, you end up with a lot of different pies, right? It's just, it, it becomes a, a large sweeping thing instead of uh, Windows. And mind you, I hate the closed source, you know, nature of Windows, but at least it's like one thing and if you have a problem, you don't have to specify like, like what flavor of operating system, what flavor of desktop system and what flavor of whatever your problem is on. Typically, it's just a Windows problem. But I guess you with the on the Mac side, there isn't I mean, a, am I am I wrong or do do Macs just sort of pretty much worry free like the software kind of just, you know, works? I guess for everyday stuff, it, it is straightforward like that. And however, doing stuff like we do with Arduino and trying to do fancy things with serial ports or any other obscure thing you get into uh, with hardware, hooking it up, you can still end up in a terminal prompt like, 
it's basically not much different from Linux in some ways. Like I had to do when installing uh, different versions, I had version, I think, two something as well as version three something of Python yeah, installed at the same time. And I had to go in and figure out how to tell Arduino stuff, use this version of Python specifically from this path. And it just got messy on me again. So I guess we can make life miserable, but I guess the Mac is more straightforward, I guess also because it's a laptop. So I'm not in there changing video cards or anything like that or swapping hard drives. It's all external plug in USB hard drives I use on it, where with the Linux system, I installed um, some SSDs in there and then I had trouble getting them to auto mount when I boot. So depending how I booted into what desktop, if I was switching around a bit, sometimes there's a hard drive missing because it, I didn't tell it to look for it properly and stuff. So, yeah, I guess as long as you're tech savvy and willing to put up with it, for me, the benefit with Linux is it is not my main system. So when things go wrong, I can just put it aside as long as I have a stable system. And I do have some of those small mini computers, I think is what they call them, that you can buy on Amazon for a couple of hundred dollars. And it comes maybe with Windows 10 or Windows 11. And then what I do is I dual boot it into a Linux. So when I need to do something specifically Windows or specifically Linux, I can just run to that separate little cube and play around with that. And if I break it, I can just start, wipe it, start over and reinstall. So I like having one stable mainstream system, at least like the Mac, so that when all else fails, I can use it to look up. How do I get myself out of this other Linux issue? It's like a whole perpetual system. So it's so weird that you use all three, but give give us a quick idea, though. Let's say you get a mailbag and you get like, let's say, an Arduino Uno or something from the mailbag. What system do you turn to to uh, write code for that uh, Uno? Usually it, it is on the Mac because that's where I first set up things for Arduino. And um, that um, it's, it's actually giving me problems now because I'm stuck on version 1.8.13, I think, which is um, I think it's considered the latest overall good stable fallback version of the Arduino IDE, whereas, of course, it's now on version two something. But my Mac being so old, I can't update the OS on it anymore. Plus, I can't run certain software anymore, including version two of the Arduino IDE. So sometimes I'm running into issues where I actually need version two of the Arduino IDE because libraries only support to onward like i think there's some esp32 stuff like that so sometimes i gotta switch over to linux where i set up a version 2 arduino ide just to compile something on there but then for regular stuff i switch back to the mac on the older arduino ide so the uh, windows system i think mostly for technical project stuff i'm forced to use windows with a certain usb uh, chip programmer that the software is only for Windows. So um, I, I don't put that system online because I don't know if I can trust that software. <laughs> I don't want it to have network access or anything. So I'm using one of those little uh, computer boxes, the tiny uh, single board sort of style that runs Linux and Windows. So I'll boot that one into Windows just to flash some chips, do some EEPROM stuff. 
then I'll go back to the Mac stuff and finish off whatever the project is. And so I'm, I'm really all over the place. It depends like what I'm doing. If I'm doing a bunch of retro hardware stuff, I might be using Windows for a month as my primary technical software ecosystem, but usually it's the Mac. And uh, because we're getting close to Christmas, I decided to check what your most viewed videos are again, because we did this last time you were on the podcast. But your uh, Christmas light video is up to 3.7 million views. Holy crap, congratulations. That's a lot of views. Are you seeing the sort of um, traffic bump uh, that you usually see in you know November, December? Yeah, it always happens uh, somewhere in early November where I start seeing more views and more subscribers and um, it's it's happening again. So I put that video out in 2018 and back then the channel wasn't even monetized, but also so because of that, maybe the, I don't know how the algorithm was working back then, but I don't know if they promoted the video originally because the channel was relatively new. It was about a year old. And so I think I found over time when I put out a video that's going to get mainstream attention like that, usually in the first year, it's not going to do very much for activity. But starting in the final uh, a year later, so that one, I don't know, I think I put it out maybe November of 2018. So it did nothing for that Christmas season. But starting the next November, it's gotten a lot of traffic every year. And it's less now than a couple of years ago. Last year had less traffic than the year before. And right now it's still too early to see how it's going to do. But yeah, the traffic is up. I think I've got double the number of monthly views already. And um, it's I, I don't get as many troll comments now. So maybe there's only more legitimate interested people who search out the topic who are going to see the video. So some of them actually have legitimate questions. Like I didn't understand this aspect. Uh, whereas uh, three years ago, I might get people saying this was the worst five minutes I ever spent. Just go spend three dollars and don't try to fix your own stuff. Buy new stuff. And so, yeah, the trolls are gone. But so far, there's still traffic. I'd like to see it get to four million. I think you'll get it. Like, is it unreasonable to to expect 300,000 uh, views in like one Christmas season? Because it, it feels like it, it does go up at that rate, at least. I can't remember how it did last year, but I think the best year it had, it got 1.5 million in the one year, I think. I'm not sure. So, yeah, it, you never know how it's going to do. And I guess it all depends if the momentum is there. Like, I think I've reached the peak two years ago and or one year ago. And now it's I think it's going to be on the decline. So it's a matter of how steep is the decline? Like maybe I'll get 100,000 views or maybe I'll get 700,000 and it'll be interesting to see. Usually the peak ends mid-December and then it's a downward slope and it might still be getting some views in mid-January, but then quiet until the coming November. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Still, um, I'm seeing you're almost at 30,000 subscribers which is amazing. And you're almost at 4 million views on that video. So hopefully, you know, 2023, hopefully that's, this is your year. We'll get you up to 30,000 and, and 4 million. Yeah. And I do, I, I have uh, two other Christmas light videos that I put out since that one, partly to address some of the 
issues people didn't like about the original video. So I, I made it less technical in some ways. And one of those is, I, I can't remember how many views that it's maybe a couple hundred thousand or it might even be half a million. I really can't remember, but those are also ramping up right now with the season. So I don't know if I'm competing with myself and I'm just diverting traffic away from the first video, or if this is actually legitimate parallel extra viewing activity, but it's hopefully one of those three videos is helpful to people. <laughs> Probably uh, parallel viewing. So you're at 420,000 views on the, uh, on the second video and I'm scrolling down to try to find the third one and I don't quite, oh, there it is. Uh, the other ones, the third one's 43,000 views. So it, yeah, it seems like you had lightning. Good. Yeah. It seems like you had lightning in a bottle on your first one. And then your second one is, is getting good. But your, your third one, I mean, I think we just got to leave, leave the, the pedants alone on that one. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't remember. Did I do that one one year ago? Because now is when it would pick up for the first time. So we might see that doing well over the next couple of months and we'll be able to definitely gauge how those kind of videos are doing because they are kind of getting obsolete now. Like, I don't know that if I was starting fresh right now, I don't know that I would make that video because who has incandescent bulbs anymore? But even though the technique works for LED as well, but again, people just more and more feel like they don't want to waste time on that stuff. Just throw it away and buy replacement stuff. I mean, that's fine. That's when uh, you and I, you know, we'll take walks around our respective neighborhoods and we'll just pick up free Christmas lights. It's that simple. Exactly. And then, uh, you know what? It's, I have some strings of lights that I, there were so many blown that I just yanked them all out. I, I think the, the one string holds a hundred bulbs. I yanked them all out. And because sometimes a string is damaged too far to bother fixing this method that I was showing is good for one or two blown bulbs. But uh, if like ha if somebody let it go for too long and half the string is actually blown bulbs, then this method is, yeah, I'd go spend money as well. So I got this one string that was so far gone. I yanked all the bulbs out and I, I have so many spare bulbs from other strings over the years in in the little container i just i took out a bunch of bulbs and i've been populating them into this empty string so yeah if somebody else wants to throw their uh light strings away i'll take that and harvest some bulbs and swap them around I, i'm just gonna come out as the grinch here i don't even decorate my house for uh for christmas i i have christmas lights because we bought them in the first year but they've been literally hanging in the basement here like coiled up up until I had to test that, uh, I don't know if you saw that video where I had the smart plug tester and I needed to find a faulty plug. And the best place to find a faulty plug is basically at the end of a Christmas light string. So it's been doing nothing since then. Yeah, I didn't do anything last year at all. I guess I was too busy with other house tasks and stuff. So I, I didn't even have time to sit down in the house very much. But yeah, I don't do too much decorating, but um, I do sometimes have Christmas lights in use and mostly it was in my previous house. So I, I've been here two and a half years in my previous house. I might do something like put a lighted garland down the stairs uh, because it was a two story house and just have that there. But it also works well as a nightlight. So, yeah, I, I more so have residual decorations. Some of them were just handed down from family 
and I just I hoard stuff. So I, I probably should go through and audit that as much as auditing my extra USB cables and like RCA plugs and cables for audio equipment, phone cords and cables. I have so much stuff. I should throw the uh, Christmas decoration stuff into a, a list along with all of that and just go through. I could probably fill lots of garbage bags and lighten up the house load and make room for more clutter. Yeah, that is the, that is the deal. Huh? When you, I mean, I think it was AVE when I used to watch him. I think he said that uh, hobbies are like a gas. They expand to fill any volume, right? So if you get rid of stuff, you're just going to, you know, get more stuff to replace it. So I don't know if that's uh that's actually a valid thing to do. Well, the, I guess for me, um, sometimes I've gotten rid of old, say, old computers where they might be not worth uh, trying to salvage. So I might have taken out some parts from it, like a video card. But then I think, OK, I've got eight computer cases of 386s, 486s from the 90s. Do I really need this many of them? So I'll maybe consolidate some of it into a working couple of systems and then bring the rest to electronics recycling only to regret it because now I might be doing something where I want a couple of simultaneous systems. Like if I'm going to try connecting two computers over modems, oh, suddenly I need two good working systems, maybe also a third one in the background doing some other stuff, even just helping me sort through old floppy disks. And I just need some good, stable systems. And so like earlier this year, I had an opportunity to uh, accept some old Tandy and similar old computer stuff, IBM compatible stuff. So yeah, I cleaned up and got rid of some old tower cases and desktop cases, and then I filled the space again, but no regrets. In fact, it's an improvement. It's like I upgraded with better junk. I've been actually looking, this brings us nicely around because I've been looking at your sort of, let's say 20, 30 latest videos. And there seems to be a theme of retro stuff. Like, I mean, just for our listeners' sakes, they should go check out your channel, of course. But um, you've got a breakout PCB for NES and SNES controllers. You've got uh, connecting uh, phones and modems with a phone line simulator. You've got, like, arcade trackball stuff. You've got all sorts. And, and uh, the Tandy Coco uh, EEPROM cartridge. What is it about uh, retro computing or retro stuff that uh, gets you interested? Is it something about capture, recapturing your youth, doing the things you couldn't do back then, or is there something else here? Some of it is nostalgic in terms of I, some stuff I was using or had access to way back. And some of it is I never had the opportunity, but I always might have wanted certain things. So, for example, with that, Tandy color computer stuff. I used to see that in the in the mid 80s in the Radio Shack catalogs. And I never had a computer in those days, like everyone else had a Commodore 64 or something along those lines or a color computer. I never had anything until I think 91 when I got a 386 running at 16 megahertz with one meg of RAM and a 42 meg hard drive. <laughs> and so um, never having my own older 80s system, I also had the opportunity to get a an old color computer. So it didn't really come with anything like there was no disk drive. And uh, 
back then those didn't have hard drives or anything so you could either use a disk drive for for five and a quarter inch floppies or a cassette to load or a plug-in cartridge slot so i don't have any of the external media loading stuff but there's the cartridge slot so that's what brought me to well i, I got this color computer and i don't know what to do with it because when you power those up it's running basic so you're ready to enter software yourself, enter a program, or you're basically loading a program from the cassette or the disk drive or loading it automatically on boot from the cartridge. So all I could do is enter basic programs as it is when I got it. So I went looking for projects and I found a couple. One of them is a cartridge that you can have made as a PCB and 3D print the cartridge enclosure. And if you have an old EEPROM, you can obtain software and flash the EEPROM. And then when you plug in the cartridge on the side of the Coco, it boots up and runs the software, whether it's a game or something else. So I did that for fun. And I quickly realized these games aren't as much fun as they looked like in the catalog back then. And so I haven't used it too much. And the other project I discovered is uh, how you can emulate a cassette. Uh, I think I used an Arduino Nano and an SD card so I could store software on the SD card. And then it would use the Nano to play the cassette audio tones into the color computer and load the software that way. So again, I did this, loaded up a game and realized it's not as much fun as I thought it would be. So right now it's more sitting there as art for nostalgic purposes. It's just, it looks interesting sitting there if you have room on a shelf or a table. And then uh, there's, as far as things like old telephone stuff, obviously I was using those kind of phones originally in the 70s and 80s, for example. They, I, I had access to a rotary phone and um, then we got uh, touch tone. So now, I still had some phones myself, and of course I've been able to acquire phones from other people who had junk they were getting rid of. So then I started, and I also have some old modems from those 90s days, using it on the 386 and later a 486 machine. And I even ran a bulletin board system with a dedicated phone line to a modem so people could call into it. So I still had my own modem, plus a few more I've acquired from other people, just like the telephones. And I thought, that's interesting. If I can, if I have these old computers anyway, and I have telephones and I have modems, it'd be interesting if I could figure out how to get an old replicated landline service up and running just for fun. And so I worked on that a bit. I actually started five years ago looking into it. And one day I realized on AliExpress, you can buy this little module that actually interfaces with a phone and controls everything you need to do. So I didn't have to do any more research like how am I going to generate ring voltages like 90 or something volts AC and how am I going to do it safely? How am I going to power the phone and let it work? And how am I going to get audio in and out of the phone? And here comes this couple of dollars little tiny module. You solder it to a board and hook up some GPIO to it and hook up a phone jack to it. And there it is. And you just connect up a couple of these together and you've got a working phone line. So I, I started experimenting with that maybe just over a year ago, 
and it worked out well. So I kept working on it. And then I saw other people had interest in it. And even now people are asking, have you got this working with more than just two phones? Like, can you do a whole network of phones and even have like three-way calling and stuff? So I think I'm going to be continuing to expand on that and see where that goes. But it's all really in that case for telephone stuff. Some people may want to use old phones for things like connect it up to a VoIP system and actually use it as a house line. The for me, it's first... just nostalgia. But if someone else wants to take it and turn it into a network aware system, at least I can hopefully create a springboard, at least inspiration, if not the actual beginning hardware experimenting platform. As a as a Canadian, you know, you should just hook up as many phones as you can to your phone sim and then just do like Bell does and uh, get the government to give you billions of dollars and you don't have to spend it uh, on infrastructure at all. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and the, these little modules claim to be able to communicate up to one kilometer from the unit to a phone. So yeah, if I could get a bunch of these, make substations and every kilometer have a repeater interconnect, and get it subsidized somehow, then yeah, there could be a business model there. For sure. <laughs> oh, so you've been so you've been playing with a lot of retro stuff lately. Is there any way to give us a hint on what's coming down the pipeline? Because uh, just interpersonally here before the episode, you were uh, telling me about how you were working on some upcoming stuff. Is there something we can tease for the channel? Or is that not really kosher? Just a quick interruption to talk about this episode's sponsor, PCBWay. PCBWay has been a long-term sponsor of the channel, and I think they're a good match for my channel because they provide quality PCBs for a reasonable price. You can get boards manufactured up to 100mm by 100mm for just $5, including shipping to Canada, $15, US including shipping to USA, $12 US dollars, which is incredibly cheap for professionally manufactured PCBs. I can personally attest to the quality of these PCBs, and so if you want a circuit immortalized forever, check out PCBWay.com with the link in the description. Now back to the conversation. Well, I guess there's always a lot of things that I'm trying to think about ongoing. So um, there's going to be more uh, telephone system stuff. I'm trying to come up with a way to expand it so that I can take maybe at least four, if not up to eight nodes, like eight of these little phone interface modules and connect them up to this other sort of expansion board where they'll all coordinate. So I can have maybe four or eight phone numbers assigned to these and people can call from one to the other and maybe even bridge over. So that's going to require some hardware support, but I'm not quite ready yet. And then there's, uh, like you mentioned, also retro stuff. There's arcade interface things with trackballs or joysticks, like certain custom joysticks that had more features than up, down, left, right. Uh, there were all, all kinds of different joysticks. So there's one of those I've been working on over the years trying to interface with. And one of these days I'm going to build an arcade cabinet. And it's probably, I don't know if it's going to have a retro pie in it or an actual, maybe a small mini computer running say linux or windows if depending on what i need but ultimately i plan to build a real arcade cabinet and put a bunch of this arcade hardware and some of that's going to need custom control and interfacing so that's also farther away though because especially the cost of wood i'm waiting for that to uh, go on sale again but also i need more really a lot more hobby time because 
there's I'm not a woodworker, so I got to learn a bunch of things still. Then there's audio related stuff, uh, both in terms of in the past, I've done some little like 555 based audio noise generating stuff or other similar things like just audio mixers or audio splitters where you can take one signal in and share it with multiple rebuffered op amp outputs. Just I'm trying to create this universe of things that I can plug in with uh, eighth inch cables maybe and go from one source to the other. So regarding audio stuff, I want to uh, it's on my list. I haven't started yet, but I want to do stuff like make a maybe a delay effect so you can plug in any sort of sound source, whether it's a little 555 circuit or an actual guitar, and you can maybe do some delay echo stuff on it. And uh, you can then adapt that to other similar types of effects. And I just want to uh, get more into synthesizer stuff like that as well, expanding that whole hobby. And then more specifically, music related with guitar stuff. There's a project that I've done a couple of videos on already with making, I think what it's called is a loop switcher, which is essentially a multi-channel in and out of circuit switcher. So let's say you've got a guitar normally plugged into an amplifier straight, nothing in between. Suddenly you want to say take three or four effect pedals. You might, might want a distortion, a reverb, a delay, maybe a flanger. So normally you plug each of these in series with each other and then you just step on the on off switch on each pedal to turn it on and off. But there's a loop switcher device where you can plug all of these effects and the guitar into this loop switcher box and then you use the loop switchers buttons to route some of these effects in and out of your guitar to amplifier signal chain as needed. And the advantage of that is you can simultaneously turn a bunch of them on or off with just one button. So let's say you want to turn three effects off suddenly instead of going one, two, three while you're doing other stuff. With this, you just press one button that you assigned to turn all three on or off. So this I think maybe even if I can pull it off, I might even be working on that in December next month. And it'll just be another prototype experiment. So I've been getting more into guitar hobby stuff. And as far as more PCBs, I think I have a list somewhere, but I can't really remember what's on it. I'm just always finishing off one project and then I'm straight into the next. And I can't really keep track of what I was supposed to be working on. So sometimes I have to go back to the list and Maybe I need to find something simple to get through just so I'm not overdoing it because some of these boards get really complicated, lots of parts, lots of testing needed, lots of troubleshooting needed. So I think uh, the telephone system that I just had that PCB made for, that was a bit of a complicated board with a lot of moving parts on it. And so I think I want something a little simpler, and it's probably going to be guitar loop switcher related for December. Yeah, a lot of your PCB projects are like ridiculous. Like the parts count on some of your projects is insane. Like I can't believe that you take all this time. And I mean, you release at least like one, maybe two a month, something like that. 
I, I cannot believe how much work you put into your, your PCBs. And here I am like struggling to put like a, an Arduino and an OLED on, on a single backplane. <laughs> yeah, I, I try to do two per month and uh, usually I can keep up with it. But sometimes when there's a lot of parts on the board, it, it can get a bit time consuming, but I still manage to somehow do it. Now, with the phone system, that one having a lot of parts on it, that I made that board the maximum flat rate where you get 10 boards for $5. I made it the maximum flat rate size of just under 100 millimeters square, and I jammed it with parts. But um, I didn't exactly do this over just a one-month span. I had those PCBs for maybe up to three months before I released that video. So I was working on it and it was actually mostly software I was trying to get working. So I try to do that if I can think of something, if I want to do two per month, what I'll try to do if there's something more complicated, I'll try to get a third and possibly a fourth PCB going at the same time. So I can actually just, if I run into trouble, I can choose, oh, this month I'm just going to get this three component board. Like sometimes it's a connector with a, a row of 0.1 inch headers as a breakout board, which is something I legitimately need. I did that with the phone jack, actually. I put a phone jack on a board, and then I had a six pin header so I could access all six conductors in the phone cable if I had that many, and I could plug it into a breadboard. And I've used those multiple times. And uh, I did a, a simple audio jack breakout board, just tip ring sleeve headers to plug it into a breadboard. Then I can plug in an audio cable, and I've had to use that a lot too. So some of those projects may seem ridiculously simple and overkill to do a PCB for, but sometimes you want it to be robust and hold together well, and you might want 10 of them instead of just hand-making one or two. It's easy to just get 10 at a cheap cost and put the stuff on it, and then it's robust and it's good for a long time. So... I, I try to balance it out, but sometimes the projects do need a lot of parts. And at least usually I've had time to develop it and work on it. So it's not as huge of a burden as it looks on screen. Yeah. I mean, those adapter boards, I mean, they, when I've, I've made some, uh, you know, which are just ba basically adapters, but I have been in the position where I've had to make, you know, hand make adapters before. And it just becomes so precarious because you have like these these uh, solid core wires that you're just jamming into breadboard, and you know you you're like oh crap I put the resistor leg in the wrong hole and you reach around and you change the resistor leg position then your wires come flying out those those adapter boards have a legitimate use so I, I'm I'm all for that stuff I'm there's no judgment here that's for sure. Oh, yeah, I, I always have wires coming out of the breadboard, like falling out, whether it's actual DuPont wires that have loosened everything up over time, or even, say, a 22-gauge solid wire. Sometimes if I have to have a bunch of those in there, especially being solid, if you have those going to some other connector floating in the air and you go to grab the connector and plug or unplug something from it, those rigid wires in the breadboard, before you know it, they've angled up and come out and you can't even tell, wait, where were they? And you got to go and trace everything out again. But if you just had this on a solid PCB plugged into the breadboard docked in properly, 
it it makes it worth the trouble to just design a two component board to make life easier. Oh yeah, and then people can just go onto the shared projects on PCBWay and they can order their own. Also, I've got a tip for people who are ordering PCBs. Um, the smaller your PCB, typically the more PCBs you're going to get for your five dollar uh, cost. So when you order PCBs, I don't know if PCB PCBWay wants me saying this, but I don't, I don't really care. Um, you just just increase the amount of uh, PCBs that you're ordering until the price goes above $5 and then just knock it back down to where it was before. And um, sometimes you can get like 20 PCBs for the five bucks. Yeah, I think I've gotten 20 before. It was a really tiny board. It's the one with uh, a uh, CR2032 battery connector and a shot key diode with low reverse leakage current so that you can use it in an old computer to replace those old leaking uh, rechargeable batteries for a battery backup for the CMOS. So that's a really tiny board and uh, it's very narrow. And then it's about the diameter. It's the width a little bit bigger than the diameter of the battery. So it's really small. And I think I got 20 before the price went up in the quantities. So yeah, it's something I discovered by accident. And otherwise I've gotten, I think 15 boards out of those, the size of a, an audio jack breakout board. I think I was able to get 15 of those instead of 10. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, uh, for the next segment, I don't know if you're aware, but um, if you want to use ChatGPT, do you use ChatGPT at all? Do you know what it is? I've still haven't used it, but I've I've seen other people use it to write code and things like that. But yeah, I I I, I don't know if there's a way around it, but. Like, I don't want to sign up for something and have to give my phone number to validate who I am. So unless there's a workaround or a third party interface that can let me access it, I'm, I haven't researched it too much, but it's mainly because I have to tell them more about me in order to use it, which I'd rather stay more private just in general, let alone signing up for a service and volunteering it. It's, it's enough that everything tracks you these days with cookies and other stuff. <laughs> well... I've got some good news because uh, the free uh, OpenAI account gives you access to ChatGPT 3.5, which is decent. Um, but if you want to try GPT 4, you have to pay and it's like 25 bucks a month or something. It's very expensive. However, Microsoft is the main investor in ChatGPT. So without signing in and without paying anything, you can just go to bing.com and then hit the chat button. And that is GPT-4 plus it has access to the internet. So what I have done is I asked it, I asked it if it knew about you and your channel. And it said, oh yes, of course I'm aware of YouTuber Gadget Reboot. And, in, and then it quoted me some stats and told me about your videos and stuff. So I asked Bing Chat to ask me a couple, to tell me a couple questions I can ask you on the podcast and see how you would answer. Do you want me, can I, can I throw you a couple of these questions? Sure. All right, so don't forget, it knows you. So, you know, I'll fact check you. <laughs> okay. Okay, so first, um, let's try this one. Uh, so what was the most challenging project you've undertaken? And then how did you overcome the challenges? Let's, let's just start with the with basics. What was the most challenging thing you've done, let's say in 2023? Well, for this year, it 
probably is the uh, telephone simulator project because, like I was saying, it's originally when I started on that, it was I had to try and figure out how do I do every aspect of it. And then I discovered that module. So even having known about the module that makes it easy before this year, trying to get it going, the major problem I had a year ago is I was using ESP8266 and I, I found out right away when I started prototyping it, this is not good enough for what I want to do. So this year when I revisited that telephone simulator project, I was using ESP32 and I'm not as familiar with it. Like I'm not sure how to optimize using different things, different like some libraries may be better suited to it and some should be avoided. So I, I've had to use different libraries for things like generating audio to make uh, dial tones and ringtones into the phone from my my side of the system. So I, I failed with a couple of different libraries before I settled on using the Mozzie library. And then things that I didn't anticipate, um, I was trying to power it from a 12 volt adapter so that I could use a couple of LDO regulators and drop it down to 5 volts for some of the board and then drop that to 3.3 for other parts of the board. I didn't realize, I knew I'd have to use a heat sink on the regulators, but I didn't realize how much heat would be generated going from 12 to 5 volts. Just that alone had way more power dissipation than I was ready for with a heat sink. So I had to scrap that and go back to, I'm, I'm just going to take 5 volts in and I'm just going to drop that to 3.3 when I need. So that was my most complex project and why it took me several months. And then the software part of it, not knowing much about software and just hacking up code that I find samples for. And it, again, I started this with the ESP8266 a year ago. So I had some code fragments working, but then I was getting into brand new stuff and adding new features this time around. So it, I think I started back on it in July this year for the software aspect. And then it was a lot of full days uh, whenever I had a full day, like a Saturday or something, it would be the whole day on this getting nowhere. So the software side and the hardware side gave me lots of trouble, but there's a couple of ways I, I finally got around it. One was having the luxury of having this much time to work on it and debug it. And the other way, there is another project in parallel on GitHub um, I believe it's called Retrophone, and there's a GitHub repo that uh, we can provide a link for. There's somebody who saw this original project of mine and wanted to maybe work on something in parallel. So we were sharing ideas in email as well as even some software I stole from his software. The part uh, where I detect rotary pulse dialing, I took that directly from his code on GitHub and I threw it into mine and did whatever it took to hack it in so it works. So that actually having that kind of open source, open hardware um, availability for helping everyone helping work on the project, even though it's a small project. And if there's only two of us talking about it, that's what helped me get through that obstacle as well with getting it up and running. And so uh, his project, if he gets it going, he's actually looking to get it more Wi-Fi wireless completely, whereas mine requires a hard line to be plugged in between 
phone modules for them to connect up. He's working towards seeing if he can make it all wireless. So you don't even need a physical connection between phones. They'll just send packets back and forth. And if that all works, that leads to maybe being able to hook it up online and do all kinds of things there. So seeing the other project going on, and I was helping a lot with hardware on his side, having trouble with the audio path, for example, and we want, wondered if we wanted to filter with a bandpass filter because the phone line was meant for something like 300 hertz to 3.4 kilohertz range. So it may be a good idea to filter it, especially if we have digital circuits on there and you don't want extra noise energy getting into anything. So I'd be sharing my schematics along the way and he'd be sharing some code. So we're taking slightly different approaches to the software implementation, but just having sort of an infrastructure in place like that is one of the main things that helped me get through this telephone project to this point and made it more motivating and other people expressing interest in comments on the video and wanting to see it expanded further. Just having it actually be useful to people is one way to get motivated and helps overcome obstacles because suddenly it doesn't become a huge burden. I can't solve this problem or that problem. It becomes let's work on this problem today. And then eventually you figure it out instead of dreading it. Do you know who the author is? Because I've, I've got two here that I found. One is K Townsend Personal and the other one is Gavin's MJ. Is that any of those? It's the first one, yeah. K Townsend Personal. Okay, I will, I will link them in the description. So, you know, shout out to you, Gavin's MJ. <laughs> All right, let's move to the next one. Um, so this is a very, this is a, a personal question. It definitely, it definitely knows about your YouTube channel. So you may want to, you know, not go out and not go outside without proper dress because it probably knows where you live. So it's asking, can you explain the concept behind your 555 kit and how it can benefit beginners in electronics? I think it's talking about your 555 timer breakout board. Yeah, that probably is the very first PCB I made in 2019 in the summer. It was now I've done a few others that might have the word 555 in the title, but breakout board, it leads me to think they're referring to the very first one, which is a 555 on a PCB with a bunch of jumpers that and some potentiometers where you can set it in different modes like a stable or monostable. So it's an, a standalone oscillator or a one shot pulse generator kind of thing. And it has the mod on there with a couple of diodes. So you can change the duty cycle a lot better with a lot more control than usual. And it's got a couple of LEDs so you can see when the output is high versus low. So it gives a lot of options like that to experiment with the 555 in any number of setups. And now that board itself, maybe I would have designed it a little differently if I were doing it today. I wonder, maybe I should try to redo it and simplify it because maybe, I don't know, maybe I overdid it and there's too many features or it's too compact and you can't really see, visualize what is this board supposed to do? There's so many things to connect up, but if somebody does follow the schematic and understand what this board is capable of as a beginner, they can just use DuPont wires if they want and connect the headers up to a breadboard or something else. 
and they can easily use it even just as an oscillator, a square wave generator, a clock source, something like that to power or drive the clock input of some other logic circuit they may have on a breadboard. And you can even use it for things like audio generating. Like for example, if you take the output of a 555 and use it to clock a D flip-flop, I think it is a D flip-flop in a certain way, and you use that output, basically you're dividing the oscillator frequency by two. And then if you, so if you take that output and feed that as a slower clock into the next flip-flop, you're again dividing by two. And as far as audio goes, you're basically lowering the pitch by one octave every time you do that in your frequency. So it's a musical relationship when you're dividing the oscillator signal down like that. So you can use this in all kinds of ways and experiment with it for for audio or video related stuff. And it's easier. Like I remember when I was originally working on stuff with 555s on breadboards when I was getting started learning, I remember I might take a circuit apart. I might have had it running a bunch of LEDs with a 4017, making an LED chaser with 10 lights. And then I'm done with that. So I take it all apart. Then I realize, oh, I want to make a tone generator. Oh, I got to rebuild that 555 again. All of those components. Now, it may not be a big deal, but where did I put that 1K resistor? And uh, having a PCB sitting there ready to go. And all you got to do is change some jumpers maybe and adjust the pot until the output is right. It's just like those um, breakout boards with a single connector on it for a phone or for audio and it plugs into the breadboard easily, it's there, it's ready to go. So for somebody getting started, I think the 555 is always going to be one of those sort of things that a lot of people should still try to use and learn with. So having a, a little development board like that, whether it's this one or someone else's, I think there's lots out there. I think it's a useful beginner tool. I actually have that board. You've sent it to me, and I've assembled it. Mind you, I've assembled it wrong because I'm an idiot, but that, that's beside the point. Um, the stupid part is it's literally sitting right above my workbench, and I think the last time I needed a triple five-timer circuit, I built one from scratch, and I was like, I was like, oh, I really, there's got to be a better way. Why didn't I think of just taking your circuit board out? I mean, that would have been ideal. Oh, well. Yeah, I don't even know where mine is. I only assembled the one, but I do have spare blanks, I think, that I could assemble. So I don't even know where mine is, but the way I get around it usually is I'll take my function generator and just generate a square wave or even a pulse waveform as needed. And I think I actually have three dual channel function generators, and so I can just uh, emulate a 555 that way. But... Otherwise, what usually happens if I have a circuit with a 555, I assume that I know what I'm doing with the schematic by now. Sometimes I'm wrong. Usually it's something, an idea for a PCB. So I just wing it and I might refer to a previous PCB I made with a 555 circuit. I copy and paste it and hope it works. And usually I just get that in and that's my prototyping platform. And if it works out, I make a video about it. If you do end up remaking it, which I think is a really good idea uh, to sort of refresh your um, your old designs, especially if it's something that's sort of public facing, like uh, a triple five timer pre-built PCB is actually a qu quite a useful thing, as we just discussed. 
I, you know, I do have a request if, if you care to, to take it on, but it'd be nice to have, uh, some, uh, pin headers maybe organized in a row or something where you can just drop it into a breadboard. You know how like a, a breadboard has a sort of like an adapter board that you can, um, plug in a power supply. Well, it'd be nice if at the other end, you could just plug in this triple five timer and then just pick up the signal from there. I mean, I, I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, actually, that's some that's an interesting thing, because I also back in the early days of PCB making, I made an op amp development board with all kinds of options as well. And it was a physically huge board, but I think it was also overkill. So I think I don't know if it's been a year. I made an updated op amp uh, evaluation board as well, and it's a tinier board and it has a single row of breadboard friendly header pins. And it has its own negative onboard voltage generator. So I can give it a positive five volts or whatever, and it will generate negative five as well. And so it's actually a split rail op amp. And I can use that if I quickly need something to get up and running so I don't have to breadboard it. And I actually used that myself separately after doing the original project video. I've used that a couple of times on the breadboard myself, and I was thankful for that. So a 555 version of that may be a good idea. Do you, um, when you do, because I, I, I know when I do my PCB projects, I publish them on PCBWay's website because then a lot of people in the comments ask me, you know, if, if I can make them one or whatever. And I'm just like, look, it's, it's cheaper for you to buy and ship the boards from China than for me to ship them to you. Uh, so... I don't want to handle the, the buying of boards. So I just publish everything on PCB ways like shared projects area. Is that where yours go to? I do that as well as I put all the files on GitHub so people can access it themselves and do what they want. And as well on the PCB way shared project, I just link the GitHub repository anyway, so people can go get more details and once I make a video for the PCB, I update the shared project because usually what I do, I'll create the shared project just before I do a video. So then I have the shared project in my video on screen where I can actually point around and talk about what's on the board because my soldering skills are so horrible. I don't want to show my real board with all the flux all over it and everything. So I just uh, I, I load up the shared project on PCB way and use that in my video and after the video is ready then i go update the shared project and i link in the video so people can see what this is if they found the project through pcbway directly instead of through my video so it all ties in together but i do put it on github as well as pcbway and lately i've been trying to be more complete so people can actually order an assembled pcb so i'm uploading the bill of materials and all of the required manufacturing files for example, they usually want a pick and place machine position coordinate file so that the machine knows where every part on the board is supposed to go. So I have to uh, do a bunch of extra work on that for every project, which again takes more time, makes it even longer to make one of these PCB videos. Since I have to get all of that done first so I can publish the project, then put that in the video. But in the old days, in 2019, when I first shared a project, 
I wasn't necessarily aiming to have it assembled by them. I was just making Gerbers available so people can order their own blank and then they can look at the schematic and figure out what parts. So now, to this day, I still get people asking, hey, do you have a bill of materials for this thing you did a year ago or two years ago? And one by one, as people want it, I'm going back and re-updating the bill of materials on PCB Way, but I try to do that completely with every project now. I was asking because I'm actually going to link the op-amp uh, PCB because I actually, uh, I just found it and uh, the thing looks pretty damn useful. So if people want to check it out, I'll, I will put a link in the description. And um, just a note for our listeners, if you go and order something off PCBWay using my link, uh, that does support my channel. But if you, um, if you order with my link, one of Gadget Reboot's PCBs, you're actually going to support both our channels. Um, it's very little bit as all uh, affiliate marketing is, but it adds up in the long run. So if you guys want to support Gadget Reboot, make sure you'll be ordering one of his PCBs. Yeah, I should double check and make sure I have everything complete on that one, including all the build materials parts list, because I can't remember when I started paying more attention to doing that. And otherwise, if anyone does run into an issue where they want to order a pre-built board, but the bill of materials is not on the shared project. Sometimes people email me directly with the email contact link on the YouTube channel, or PCB Way will email me saying, hey, we have somebody looking for a quote on assembly, but uh, we need a bill of materials. Do you have one? And then if needed, I'll go and as soon as I can try to update that. Yeah, actually, it seems like you have a lot of projects up there. So I do encourage people who are listening to this to go and uh, take a look because, again, like you and I know, but the listeners may not know how accessible some of these PCBs are because they're actually very inexpensive. And if I'm looking at some, like like you've got an ESP32, um, sort of like a, a dev breakout board, so you've got buttons and potentiometers, all sorts of stuff on there. It, it can be quite useful, um, even like as someone who does use an ESP32 in a lot of my projects now, even just having the male uh, uh, like uh, pin headers facing upwards, facing towards the, the you know, the damn, um, you know, f facing towards you when you're looking at the ESP is already a big help because you can't access the buttons and plug in things from the bottom or it doesn't the i don't know if you have this issue too but i can't fit the esp32s in a breadboard it's very awkwardly shaped so those kinds of pcbs are amazing for that kind of stuff yeah the breadboard problem is i think the reason i was motivated to make that breakup board and it's right here beside me i was using it yesterday um so yeah when you plug those at least this one that i got the 30 pin one when you plug it into a breadboard you have no clearance to access pins on the one side and you have one row of pins you could plug in on the other side so it's unusable unless you get some of those generic tiny breadboards that don't have all of the extra strip of bus pins so it's really just row pins like five pins per row all the way up to the edge so you can you can take two of these little tiny colorful breadboards and dedicate one side of the ESP32 to each breadboard so it looks like it's kind of 
walking around on legs and then you can plug in everything to it but yeah i just needed uh some even just having a couple of buttons and leds quickly available that i can plug in but they're not directly wired so i i'm not committed to those gpio i have to still add a dupont jumper to get that functionality i've i've used all this directly myself and i actually should assemble a couple more of those especially for things like the telephone system it uses at least if i'm using two nodes i need two esp32s so i had one of them in this breakout board and i had another on that breadboard weird setup with the two small breadboards just to get it to work and it was a bit kind of how are you doing i could I, I still had wires falling out so having a soldered up thing where you just plug in a few wires that just makes all the difference what i did is i took uh two breadboards when i had this issue and i ripped the power rails off one side of each of the breadboards and then stuck them together and then stuck the ESP32 into them. So I had basically two breadboards and, you know, with the ESP32 bridging the gap. It's really not breadboard friendly, that thing. Yeah, that's essentially what I was doing just with those tiny. I think I got them on eBay. Like you can get those little mini breadboards. I don't know how many pins wide, but it, it might be up to 20 rows. And so, yeah, you, you then take the one side of the ESP and plug it onto that because there's no extra strip in the way. So I, I for years, I think I bought those in 2017 and for years they were sitting in a part drawer. What am I going to do with these tiny breadboards? Sometimes I was using them if I needed to plug in a transistor or a pot or some other three pin thing. And I I just wanted it away from the main breadboard and I would put long jumpers. Otherwise, they were sitting around. But then stuff like that came up. And again, it's good to hoard parts. You never know when you're going to need them. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. So I would say, uh, definitely check out, uh, the shared projects, uh, either gadget reboots or, or mine, if you want. Also, do you, do you have a Patreon? I keep, I, I don't actually know. I do. I have Patreon since I think 2018. And so there we go. People listening to the yeah. podcast, if you want to support more directly, you can join Gadget Reboot's Patreon, also linked in the description. I'll put it on the top, actually, just below the sponsorship link, and then uh, and then hopefully we'll get you a couple uh, subscribers for the holiday season. Oh, any support is uh, very much appreciated, even if it's just subscribing. Like I'd let, now that I'm close to thirty thousand subscribers, I think I'd like to jump to that hundred thousand mark. <laughs> Let's do it. Everyone get to subscribing. You probably get uh, your episode probably is only going to get about a thousand views because that's about what I get uh, between audio only and uh, and YouTube on these podcasts. But uh, hey, if we can push 70,000 somehow, let's let's do it. Yeah, let's get to that by the end of 2024. All right. One more from uh, ChatGPT and then we can call it a day. So ChatGPT is asking, how do you balance your work on the channel with your personal life? And um, personally, I'm uh, uh, I have to I have to balance it with um, basically uh, going crazy because I don't have freaking time. Uh, how do you do it? Well, the the short answer on that is it is not balanced. It's very imbalanced, but always changing. So on average, it works out. So basically, 
if I have other main priorities going on for, say, most of the week, and then I might have a couple of days that I can finally get around to projects again, what I'll do if I'm working on something where I want to get a, say, a PCB project video released by a certain date, um, well, I got the weekend and then I'm going to be busy again for several days. So in order to meet my deadline that I set for myself, that weekend is going to be really heavily biased toward working on that project. So I might wake up, work on it as much as I can with minimal breaks, and then just next thing you know, it's time to go to sleep. And then I wake up and work on it again. And hopefully I don't have major problems with it. But otherwise, in other times where I don't have too much going on, I'm not under a tight deadline on, on any project like that, that's when I might do other things if I have free time on the weekend or something like that. Suddenly I might be cleaning up all this stuff in the basement that I've been hoarding and organizing it, auditing and seeing, do I need to keep 500 USB cables or can I pair this down somehow? Or um, in this past year, one of the projects I was working on in the basement was adding more sort of built in or attached to the stud wall shelving. So um, I had a couple of extra sheets of four by eight foot plywood and I had a bunch of two by fours left over. So they were just sitting around waiting for a project. So what I did is I just put up in, in the sort of mechanical utility side of the basement where the furnace and water tank stuff is. There's a kind of a dead corner where you can't really use it for much, but you can store tools on there like um, things like crowbars and clamps and stuff. I just kind of used the two by four and the plywood to make a floor to almost ceiling height shelf that uh, I think it was maybe two to two and a half feet deep. And then it was four feet wide uh, in that one corner. So I had three or four levels of that. And then I could still put stuff on the floor and slide it under. It's an unfinished basement, so it's just concrete floor. So if I might have had a couple of plastic bins, I can slide them under this shelving and then put some other stuff. And I supported it by bracing underneath. It's not just plywood spanning the width. It's actually got two two by four rails going across the whole structure, too. So the plywood is really just to make a con continuous constant surface and it's supported by two by fours so i can put some sem semi heavy toolboxes power tools and stuff and so that's safe enough to go near a furnace so i figured i'd make use of that space and only chipping away at it like i didn't just build that shelf when i had time i just kind of chipped away at that shelf whenever i had free time on the weekends so if uh, if I had a higher priority of building a shelf instead of making a video, then I would have woken up on a Saturday and spent all day trying to get the shelf done and then all Sunday fixing it because I'm not a carpenter. So I guess I might go all out on a project here and there and overdo it with time put into it. But then I'll just probably take time off. Like I make a PCB and then I might not do anything PCB related for two weeks and I'm focusing on other stuff. So I have a little bit of luxury of time flexibility so I can choose what to focus on, but priorities do come up, especially with the house where you've got to tend to something and you hope you're ahead enough of schedule on other stuff. 
Oh yeah, I patched holes in the roof uh, last week, so I I know the, I know the stupid uh, houses can can be demanding of your time, especially when you don't have any to share. Oh yeah, I've, I'm I'm constantly doing something in the house, whether it's my own project or maintenance. Like right now, this house is relatively newly built, and so a new furnace, obviously as well. But I've already had to dedicate entire days to find a leak with the condensation from as soon as it became heating season here and all kinds of condensation has to drain out of the furnace every time you go through a heat cycle. Well, that was getting backed up and it was leaking from somewhere I couldn't clearly see inside the furnace. And I never had this much trouble with my previous house that I was in for over a decade. And so suddenly this brand new furnace is finding a way to leak on me and I eventually figured it out. But I know it's going to be an ongoing extra attention thing I need to pay attention to every year and I'm going to have to in advance carve out time for it. So you can't just get away from problems by getting a newer house. There's always something that needs to be fixed. Constantly. All right. On a lighter note, I do have a burning question and this will be the last one. Um, have you had the chance to test out those sort of Chineseium guitars that you've uh, that you got in a mailbag not too long ago? And uh, if so, how are they? I've done a little testing with those. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know what I was doing there, um, basically I'm a perpetual beginner with anything music related, including guitar stuff. So I got my first ever guitar. I found the receipt for it lately when I was cleaning up old receipts, going through tax papers and what do I need to keep? It was April of 1998. I bought a low cost budget guitar. It was just over $200. And it now in retrospect, I can say it wasn't really that playable. It was hard to deal with. It wouldn't stay in tune. This, the frets, I think, maybe this guitar needed a setup on it because when I try to fret certain notes on certain parts of that guitar, they were always uh, muting on me. I couldn't get it to sound clearly out. So I struggled with that one for a couple of years and I realized, okay, I'm still interested in this hobby enough. 2001, I bought my next guitar that I had. I still have it. It's the only one I had for a very long time then. So that one I spent maybe $670 on, but I knew a little bit more about what I was looking for. And this was more in the style that I would need to try and accomplish what I want. Because a guitar is not just a guitar. You have one and you can do whatever. Some people can, but different techniques or styles of playing, you might need to... It's, this is one reason you see guitarists on stage swapping a, a guitar between sets. It might be because it's in a different tuning and you're not going to sit there on stage retuning it so you just have a spare. It's often because you need a totally different style of guitar to play certain things a certain way. Some of them have more frets and you might need those extra frets. Some of them might have lighter or heavier strings fitted on them to do different techniques. So for me, this one that I bought in 2001 was great for a long time and I still use it, but in 2013, I started again, like I, I still never really, I never did take lessons. I don't know what I'm doing. And now with YouTube, at least I'm able to learn. So what I've done over these years, I've learned a few techniques only, a few little tricks that I can pick up a guitar and make it look like I know how to play for a second. 
So I started wanting to get a, a few different sounds out of a guitar that I couldn't do with the one I had. So the one I had, it's it's got active pickups in it, meaning it's kind of got a built-in preamp in the guitar, in the pickup itself, actually. And it's more for like maybe heavy metal music or heavy rock music and for that kind of heavy distorted sound. So if I wanted to try learning more classic rock sort of sounds, those kind of pickups in that kind of guitar may not work so well. So I started getting more interested in broadening things, even though I still didn't know what I was doing. So I bought a Gibson Les Paul from a music store brand new and still never regretted it, even though it's I don't know how to use it to its capacity. So every so often I'd go and pick it up and I'd remember, oh, yeah, it, it hasn't been played in two or three months. I pick it up and I try to do like a two string chord. And it's like, OK, yeah, I remember why I spent all that money on it. OK, I can put it away. It sounds good still. I'm still interested. So now, as time goes on, recently, like the past year, I noticed people are buying these cheap guitars on eBay and AliExpress and stuff like that. And otherwise, on more mainstream places, you can get on Amazon as well as maybe even music stores. You get budget guitars made in China, for example. And so they're going to be in the style of guitars from major brands that we all know. It's just a no-name brand or a small you never heard of it, name brand. But people on YouTube have been reviewing a bunch of these saying how great they feel. And they might have like, say, a two or three thousand dollar Fender or Gibson at this cheap one they just bought copies. So they have it right there and they're comparing it. And they, in some cases, say, I actually prefer this cheaper one because the one I bought brand new from Fender two years ago, it came needing a setup and it's got sharp frets. When you touch it, you might feel like you're going to cut yourself. It needs to be worked on, but this cheap one I bought is actually great and I have no complaints about it. So I started realizing, hey, I can spend maybe three or four hundred and get something that might cost thousands if I bought the proper thing that it is replicating. So I bought a, a replica of a Les Paul in August, I believe. I got it in August. I ordered it in July. It took about a month. So I spent maybe 400 and to import it in with tax and duty was like 30 bucks. So I was willing to take that risk for that amount of money to get something that probably would sell if it was a name brand. It would probably be thousands. I'm willing to take the risk because I also wanted to learn guitar maintenance and repair skills. So I've also been buying tools to use like sharpening and filing frets over time. You might need to do that because they get worn in and you have to kind of buff out any divots. So I thought I'm going to use these cheap guitars. If nothing else, if they don't work well, I'll use it to practice on because I'd rather start filing a fret on this thing that never did work instead of my several hundred or several thousand dollar guitar. And so I got it and I plugged it in and it sounded fine. Like, I don't feel I need to replace anything on that Les Paul copy. And now there are issues where only because I have a proper Gibson one, I can compare how it feels. There are some things I might want to work on with it. I think I need to make some adjustments to it still because there's a couple of areas. If I try and press down on the fret, I can do it on my proper name brand guitars. And I do it on these couple of Chinese built guitars that are sold cheaply. And it's deadened 
and string. And if I didn't know any better, I'd be thinking, oh, my technique is no good. I'm not a good guitar player. So the advantage in doing this is when you know already what to expect and you can compare to something else. Like I can lay one down and I can pick up the other one and see, okay, it's not me. It's the guitar that needs a little tweaking. But for $400, you're getting something that's almost perfectly good to go. So like I bought that first one and then it, w it went so well, I immediately bought a second one. And this one is more of an Eddie Van Halen style copy. So I bought it kind of on a whim, more like if nothing else, if it doesn't work well, hey, it looks fine sitting there. You can hang it on the wall. It's a conversation piece kind of thing. But it was actually usable and playable as well. Like I didn't really I, I think I have to adjust it in the same way. Like there's a few areas where, OK, I can tell this neck needs to be have the trust rod trust rod loosened or tightened and bend the neck one way or the other because I'm getting buzzing or something on the frets. But generally it works fine. Like I don't feel I need to immediately go and spend money to upgrade it or replace it. And it doesn't need any major overhaul. I can use it as is. And I just plan over time to work on it again and use it as a, a tool. But it was about the same price between three and four hundred, I think, plus another 30 to uh, import it. So now some people may have a hit and miss issue with quality, but I had good luck and I trusted YouTube reviews and videos that I saw and it worked out fine. So YouTube is a good resource to check out things like this. And over time, you, you watch several videos and if it's people you think you already know you can trust and they're not just trying to sell stuff, then you just go for it if you have that little bit of extra money to take the risk with. And for me, it worked out, but I think I killed my budget. So I'll probably leave it at that. And when I go down where I keep those and I look at them, even if I never picked them up and used them, just having them there as visuals, it makes me motivated to pick up whatever other ones I am already familiar with and can at least play three or four notes with before I have to give up and say, that's all I know. That's pretty awesome. Um, as someone who owns a American Standard Stratocaster, which has been sitting in its case for probably the last 11 years without being used, um, I feel like maybe I should buy one of these cheapies to play and to, you know, to, to beat around. And maybe I should sell my, my Strat because... I am no good at guitar. I just like the idea of being able to play guitar. And I, I feel like it's, it's a waste having like a $1,000, $1,500 guitar, which I bought used uh, back in 20, 2008 or something. Um, instead, you know, instead of just having a, a two $300 thing, because I'm seeing right here, I don't know if this one is a, is a proper one, but there is pretty much exactly my guitar in the same color uh, on AliExpress for $245.75 Canadian free shipping. So I don't know. It sounds worth the risk. Yeah, if, if especially for that price, it's even cheaper than the two I bought there. And yeah, like I just I went for it and it worked out both times and it, they took both of them took about a month each to uh, arrive from the day I placed the order. And otherwise though, um, one thing that you may consider 
uh, before you look at ordering from overseas like that. I would also check Amazon for, I don't know offhand, any brand names um, or whatever the case may be, how you can find them. Like if you want certain style of guitar body and such, if you do a little research and see if there's some, it, it, like these, we're not sure, we meaning me and other YouTube people I've used to watch with uh, doing research on these guitars. Nobody knows for sure how these people are doing it. it. We don't think it's just some guy with a hobby building guitars. There's all kinds of theories that maybe these could be the same guitar manufacturing facilities that already make name brand things. And it's just that, oh, let's uh, sell our own non-branded similar stuff, not the same quality or anything, but um, let's sell our own stuff. So that's, I think, why the quality is getting better over the past couple of years this is the consensus that people who talk about this had come to like it's gotten very good but like i said with my experience still it might need some adjusting and stuff like that so it may not be a hundred percent great for somebody who just wants something good to go so however if you do this on amazon i believe you're really going to find an actual brand a knockoff brand like you never heard of them and uh, if you do some research, you might find there's a few brands on uh, Amazon. And if it's shipped by, sold by, whatever, Amazon, if, if you get one and it's not in great condition, you can always return it. And I actually bought one on Amazon, an M Musi. It's a Telecaster style. It was like, it's more expensive because it's more official as a business. But um, I think when it was on sale, it was just over 400 so for $400, that Telecaster is a lot more ready to go out of the box. Like, really, there's no... I think I might have to do a slight... I might, I might have to adjust the height of the strings. They're a bit low to the fretboard. But other than that, maybe if I had to adjust the truss rod, it's a little turn with a wrench. I think that's about it, though. So it's a lot more ready to go turn key if you get more of an established um no name brand from amazon because you're still sort of in the same budget range but you, you there's a better chance of success and if there's a problem of course you have a lot easier time getting it resolved there is a full size um uh stratocaster copy but it, the the name brand is donner d-o-n-n-e-r in the color i want for 199.99 you know sold by or sold by Donner, the company, but ships from Amazon. So fulfilled by Amazon. So that might be worth the try. Because if I can get something that plays right, I won't feel... So I, I don't know if this is a valid feeling or not, but um, it's very humid uh, down here in my workshop. And this is my only space I, I really have. So I don't want to leave my American Standard Strat just sitting in open air here which means that if i want to play it i have to go up two flights of stairs grab the case come down two flights of stairs you know play for a little bit until my fingers hurt and then put it back in the case and go up two flights of stairs so maybe having something just sitting here in my workshop might be the way to go that is absolutely a valid point that i've experienced myself like for example when i bought that Amazon M Musi Telecaster style. 
I believe that was around the same time as I did the first AliExpress purchase around August. And for a while I had it, like I keep all this stuff in the basement, but for a while I had this on the main floor in the living room and it, it's always right there looking at me on the stand, like a single stand. So it's facing me and I, and I had a little practice amplifier sitting there mostly because I was just trying it out and trying to make sure, do I, is there any problem? Do I need to return this? So I would just, you know, be sitting there watching a review video on that specific model and somebody might point something out and then I just go grab it right there beside the television and check it out. But I felt more inspired and definitely like when I had that um, Gibson Les Paul first purchased in 2013, it's most most of its life it has been inside a case and that means most of its life it has not been played. Lately, I bought actually a couple of guitar racks that can hold seven guitars. So you just have them all kind of standing up vertically and they're in this sort of a yoke neck holder. So you have seven going in a row and then I, I ran out. So like I think including we talked about it another time, I bought that guitar strat style kit. I still haven't put that together, but if I ever do get around to it, I'm going to have nine guitars. So I bought two of these seven guitar rack holders and ultimately I don't want them to get all full of dust and everything. But right now, especially working on these PCBs that involve guitars and signal routing, I want them all accessible and it makes it more motivating to play. So that Les Paul from 2013 is sitting on that rack. It looks like a stage rig sitting there ready to go at any minute. And sometimes I'm in the basement watching a YouTube guitar video and I'll pause it because I'm suddenly in the mood. I just heard something interesting. I want to try and replicate it. So I go and I pick up the guitar off of the stage looking rack, plug it in and there it is. But if that was on a different floor and it was in a case and I had to go dig it out, I would either not do it at all or I'd choose a different guitar. So definitely it's inspiring to have it something available right there. And otherwise, yeah, if it's something you want to be playable when you want to go and grab it. Yeah, I think Amazon would be the best bet. If you can get it for that price, a, a knockoff like that, that price on Amazon, and then there, you're taking out the risk of if it's not playable, you can return it and try again. I think that's probably your best bet as a first choice. And if you wanted something more for visual art inspiration to have around and not necessarily play well out of the box, then AliExpress is a good place for replicas that are more ornamental and may play well with some work. Yeah, so maybe. Yeah, the 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 possibility is there. I'm going to I'm going to consider it because it is a Black Friday deal. It's uh, you know, marked down to 200 bucks from uh 250. So that's actually quite uh quite a good deal. So we'll see if uh if you guys are listening to the podcast, I I will link uh some of these guitars in the description so you can go have a look at them. It may or may not be Black Friday by the time you listen to this, but um yeah, try at your own risk. We are not guaranteeing any quality. This is uh, this experimentation at the low end of the price scale, basically. <laughs> yeah, and with that specific model, like I know I've heard the name Donner before, so maybe there's YouTube review videos out there you could also look at before you take the plunge and see, did anyone say good or bad things about that specific one? And so any closing thoughts for the audience? Nothing specific other than thanks for your time. If you made it this far, 
And if anyone's interested in any of those PCB projects and uh, has any ideas on how to improve any of them, if there's going to be an opportunity, I can make a redo attempt on any of those designs. Or if there's new efforts that somebody would like to see focused on, like maybe I've done three or four PCB designs of a certain project niche and somebody might realize, hey, if you did number five and six or whatever, these kind of designs, that would be something useful. I'd like to see that. Like, just uh, let us all know, any of us who make PCBs that you follow, just don't just watch the videos and say, oh yeah, I wish he had done this project too. Always give us feedback and recommendations and it's a two-way street and a lot of the time, what motivates us is seeing interest in what we do. And I would like you guys, if you have a couple extra dollars to spare per month, please consider joining Gadget Reboot's uh, Patreon. Uh, he's probably too shy as because he's a maker to say it himself, but I will say it um, because a couple dollars goes actually a very long way when you're a creator. Um, and not so much to pay the mortgage, uh, especially here in uh, Canada, but a lot to uh, motivate us to make videos because um, saying that you loved a video that you watched is awesome, but saying that you loved the content that we made and then you throw a couple bucks per month at us, uh, that is like some of the world's greatest feelings. It means you're doing something. So if you got a couple extra bucks, subscribe to Gadget Reboot's Patreon and... Um, Make sure to give him a Merry Christmas. Yeah, a couple of dollars goes a long way on AliExpress. It Not so much anymore, because uh, I find the shipping is getting absolutely a little bit insane. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, it does go it does go towards something. That's for sure. Yes. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I'm going to let you go so that I'm not responsible for the delay in, in your next video. And uh, for the listeners out there, uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation and we'll catch you in the next podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. It's been great. All right. Have a good one.